Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be back in with you this week. And, and last week we had a great chance to hear about what God is doing and hear about God's heart for the nations as we had Eric Belts with us sharing about his work in Africa and also preaching to us from Psalm 67, reminding us we've been saved for a purpose. God, God works through his people for his glory in the most awesome ways. And we've seen this happen time and time again in our study in the book of Acts. All the way up until Acts chapter 12 so far, we've, we've seen God working time and time again. Yet, yet as we turn to chapter 13 this morning, we're, we're coming up to what might be probably the most prominent turning point in the entire book of Acts. There's a turning point in chapter 13. So you see, up until this point, Luke has been primarily focused on, on Peter, and he's been focused on the church in Jerusalem. And in this, the main message going out has been that God has fulfilled his old covenant promises. God is doing that through Jesus, Israel's crucified and risen and exalted Messiah. That that's how he's fulfilled his promises and that God is actively restoring Israel through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. That's been up through chapter 12. Though, though in these final chapters, we've also seen God starting to do something new that has not been deeply developed yet. God is starting to press the gospel into the Gentile world, Right? He's starting to press it into the Gentile world. We've seen Cornelius, and, and we've seen that this church in Antioch start to grow. But when we get to chapter 13, everything changes. Luke shifts the focus from Peter to Paul. He shifts the focus in this, this transition of the storyline from the gospel's impact in Jerusalem to the gospel's growing impact throughout the entire Gentile world. Fulfilling Jesus' last words, his last command in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He told his disciples, but you will receive power. You can't do this in your own power. You can't do this in your own wisdom, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, what does Luke want us to see this morning in this shift between gospel witnesses and this shift between geographic locations? I think he wants to make it clear that one thing remains the same. There's one thing that remains the same, and that's that the mission of the church is wholly dependent on the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in these 12 verses this morning. Because as we walk through this text, we're going to see the Holy Spirit at every junction of the story. Number one, the Holy Spirit calls Saul and Barnabas out of their local church in Antioch, verses one and two. In verse three, the Holy Spirit confirms this calling as the local church pursues clarity and prayer. And then when we get to verses four through 12, we see the Holy Spirit confirming both the message and his messengers of the gospel by punishing this Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus. Holy Spirit's at every stage, actively working. So let's go to the first couple of verses here and look at how the Holy Spirit calls Saul and Barnabas to ministry in Antioch, beginning in verse 1. 
Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Let's take a look at this church really quick before we get too far into the story. Three things to highlight about this church in Antioch. The first thing that we see is that this church in Antioch is is a little different from the church that we've been seeing in Jerusalem up until this part of the story. Whereas the church in Jerusalem was comprised mainly of ethnic Jews and led by a team of Jewish apostles, the church in Antioch was comprised of a multicultural group of people all meeting together and they're led by a multi-ethnic team of spiritually gifted ministers. This is significant in the storyline of Acts because it helps us see that God is gifting his church without any regard to ethnic distinctions or personal backgrounds. Whatever it was in the past does not matter after they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We walk through the people. We can, we'll just, just touch on them really quick. We've already met Barnabas. There's this faithful Jew from Cyprus. We've seen him at the church in Jerusalem. We've seen him work in Antioch. But then we go on in the list. We're told that one of the leaders in this church is Simon. And Simon is most likely an African because his Latin nickname, Niger, means black. That's his nickname. Lucius, he's from Cyrene. That's in North Africa. We have two Africans who are serious, significant church leaders in Antioch. Then we come to Menaean. You think of anybody who shouldn't be a leader in the church in Antioch? A lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. In fact, this word lifelong friend here means that he was likely, he was likely a foster brother or intimate friend or even could have been a, a household slave who grew up with him. But he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Like, like who do you not want as a church leader? But he is. And then finally we have Saul. A Jew who was born and raised in the city of Cyprus, well outside the land of Israel, trained under the law by the Pharisee Gamaliel, and, of course, former persecutor of the church. It's a very diverse group of people that are leading this church in Antioch. The second thing that we see is from everything we can tell in the text, when we, when we move from chapter 12, where we were a month ago, to chapter 13, where we are now, is that, is that church life in Antioch doesn't seem to be as dangerous as church life in Jerusalem. Remember Herod was persecuting the church? He killed James. He was trying to kill Peter. That doesn't seem to be happening up here in Antioch. They seem to be enjoying a significant period of growth and social stability and gospel success. Granted, they are a long ways away from Jerusalem. The third thing that we see is that the entire church appears to be gathered together in verse 2 for something more than a weekly church service. They're fasting and worshiping. 
I mean, everything we know about the early church. Yes, they, they, yes, they practiced fasting. Yes, they worshiped. But this is something special. They're gathering together and they're fasting and, and they're worshiping together. And as one scholar notes here, he says, given that the Spirit calls the church to set apart Saul and Barnabas for service in verse 2, it is most likely that the entire church, not just the leaders here, not just the leaders are gathered together for this fasting and worship. They're gathered together. What, 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 what's caused them to gather together? What's the focus? We're not sure. Speculation by some is that, is that maybe they've gathered together to ask God to give them clarity on how to keep working and, and how they should be moving the gospel forward. But we, we don't know. But what we do know is they're gathered together for this period of fasting and worship. And in the middle of this period, the Holy Spirit calls Saul and Barnabas. And it's right at that point that I'm pretty sure that a number of you are asking the question, Mark, how in the world did the Spirit disclose this call in the first place? Like, 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 what did he do? How did they know? I mean, isn't that one of our big questions often as Christians today? Like, how do we know when the Spirit's working? How do we know when the Spirit's calling? And to be honest, we don't know exactly how he did it because Luke does not tell us. On the one hand, it easily could have been that he spoke to one of the prophets in the church. We're told this church has prophets and teachers. Maybe he spoke through the prophets. He could have. But at the same time, the Spirit could have laid that very impression on a number of people in the congregation, leaders and and members of the church, that he was calling Saul and Barnabas to ministry. We don't know. We, We don't know. What we do know, though, is that this calling, however it came, from the Holy Spirit was not a passing thought. It it was not of like this, it wasn't one of many options laid before the congregation. It wasn't like they were given this multiple choice. There seems to be one thing that's coming forward in the Holy Spirit's leading. We we see this two ways in the text. Number one, the Greek verb called in verse two is in the perfect tense. This means that the Holy Spirit has already set apart Saul and Barnabas. It's done. It's settled. He's called. It's on their life. It's not changing. Whether the church realizes it, whether they accept it yet, it's set. And the second thing that we see in this is that the Greek verb set apart here is not a question. It's not a polite request in the Greek here. It is an imperative. It's a command. When he says, set apart Saul and Barnabas for service, he's saying, this is a command, set them apart for service. So it demands obedience. See, however the Spirit's call came to the church, what we can see in the text is it was sufficiently clear and compelling enough to the church to give them the distinct impression that God was not just suggesting but commanding them to do something that would alter the very fabric of life in the church in Antioch. And I, I don't know if we always realize that when we get to this text. Saul and Barnabas are, are not two guys, two wallflower flowers hanging around in the back of the church, Right? Like, like, they have been responsible for the active discipleship and growth and ministry of this church for over a year, maybe two years. It's through their work that the church is at the place it is now. And God is calling them to send those guys out. 
probably the most qualified men in the church. Yet as we continue reading, we quickly discover the church doesn't instantly respond to the Spirit's call, does it? They don't instantly respond the moment they dissensed this call. And I think this is important to spend a moment to highlight. Because we live in a day and age, in, in, and we'll call it the broad evangelical world. Pretty nebulous word nowadays can mean many things. But it's really taboo nowadays to question a Christian's sense of the Spirit's calling. Isn't it? I mean, I mean, all somebody has to say is, I feel like God is calling me to do this. I have peace about this. I've received a word from the Lord. And all discussion is supposed to stop. Right there. Done. Over. That's all you're supposed to say. But the problem with this, I think almost all of us have seen something like this happen. And we follow the long-term trajectory of whatever this impression, this sense, or this individual calling this person had. And we start watching it play out over time. And we often see, in many cases, not every case, in many cases, we see a series of decisions and actions and results that increasingly diverge from God's revealed word. We kind of look and go, man, if, if, if... that was God's calling on your life. That's very concerning to me. Now let me be clear. I'm not trying to imply that modern Christians never sense the Holy Spirit's leading. Totally not saying that. What I'm trying to point to is the fact that modern Christians in many ways have lost the basic discipline of spiritual discernment. We've lost the basic discipline of spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment is not saying, I feel like I have a sense I should do something only, or I feel peace about something. There's more to it than that. Let me just raise two basic pieces of spiritual discernment. Number one, Does a person's sense of peace or does a person's sense of direction from the Holy Spirit align with God's revealed word? First question. Is what God has given you peace about something that God affirms in his word, yes or no? If it does not align with God's revealed word, let me be clear. I can tell you without a doubt, it is not from God. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not follow your heart. Do not follow your sense of peace if it does not align with God's revealed word. Not from God. God will never direct you to disobey his word ever. First step. Second, which is what we see more of in this text. There's a good question to ask when it comes to spiritual discernment and the the person who's feeling a sense that God is leading somewhere. Whether that be somebody sitting next to you or it be one of your elders or your pastor. Is this person willing to submit their personal sense of direction 
to their fellow Christians, especially their elders and pastors, for simple questions and prayerful consideration? Are are we actually willing to bring it to light for others to be praying about, for others to ask us honest questions about? Are we willing to do that? I, I I mean, if the person isn't, I mean, they're, they're honestly actively disregarding the most powerful source of God-ordained support and discernment and protection that they could possibly receive in their life. Let me give you a, a present example. Present. Like, 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 so present, it is now. Okay? Last year, one of our elders, Nick Alford, we all know Nick, Right? Nick Alford shared with the elders his growing desire and sense of calling to pursue a a particular ministry opportunity. And and at that time, he'd only shared it with the elders. Then then he kind of opened up more with his small group, sharing it with his small group, saying, I don't know, we we think God is calling us to this this, this ministry. And and as Nick shared with us, we we, we had as as elders a chance to talk. Nick and I talked a number of times together. I asked Nick questions and and prayed with him ceaselessly about it. And and as elders, we prayed for him and committed to praying for him about it. Yet, Yet as we prayed over the past year, something happened. God slowly led Nick away from his initial ministry opportunity he was, he, he was, he was thinking about. And not, not, not a single elder stood up and told Nick, Nick, that's the wrong place to go. No, not one of us did. Like, like we well, didn't know. We're praying. But God changed it and led him from that initial ministry opportunity to the church in Kirkland that he is actually candidating for right now, like today. Preaching today. And while, as a church, and certainly your elders, we really wish we could keep Nick here, tie him down, never let him go, we fully believe that Nick is following God's leading. Whether this church calls him or not. See, notice, notice like, like, we're not still completely certain that this is the church. Not that we're thinking it's not, but it's like, but, but as far as an overall call in Nick's life towards pastoral ministry, like every elder sitting around the table looks and goes, yeah. <laughs> so just, just, just a present example of, of a sense of calling going one direction that over time God, God moving to a clearer point. So returning to the church in Antioch. How does the church in Antioch respond to the revelation of the Holy Spirit's leading? They respond by calling the entire church together, again, not just the leaders, together for a prolonged period of fasting and prayer. They they call the church together to to confirm their sense of the Spirit's call and most likely also to commission Saul and Barnabas for their new calling. Again, these are probably the most qualified and effective leaders and upfront people in the entire church in Antioch. And it's important to see in the text, Luke doesn't chastise the church. He doesn't treat their delay as disobedience. Rather, he seems to present it as an example of humble faith. Because for everything that we see in the text, the church seems to fully believe that the very God who disclosed his initial calling will certainly confirm his calling as his people pursue him in fervent prayer. 
which is exactly what God does. Exactly what God does. And just like that, the first official missionaries in the history of Christianity are sent out by a local church. That's a whole other sermon series. The importance of the local church in global missions. But they're sent out at the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's responsible for this, this massive move out into the Gentile nations. The church didn't come up with the idea themselves. Just like Peter, sitting on his roof, didn't come up with the idea in Joppa that he should go travel to Cornelius' house. This is God's work. God is moving his people. And it's a point that Luke reiterates again in the opening lines of verse 4 to reinforce the fact that the Holy Spirit has not only called Saul and Barnabas to this ministry, but that he's actively directing and empowering them to fulfill their gospel call. Let's begin in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let's just stop there for a moment. Let's just highlight two aspects of this journey before we move into the interaction with, with the false prophet. Let's just put this kind of like, sometimes when we read through here, we can lose the scale of the travel. And just to point out, like this is nothing like, nothing like Hudson Taylor's six-month ocean journey to China. The trip from Antioch to the port town of Seleucia was 16 miles. And, and, and once they got on a ship and they started sailing for Cyprus, it was 60 miles by sea. So 76 miles total, to put it in modern terms, that is basically if you have to drive to the airport from Polsbo and you drive across the Narrows Bridge and around, it's about the same distance. Now that's the first stage of their journey. But they've gone about 76 miles. The second thing I want to point out is that while not ignoring the Spirit's leading, we also see something about kind of the initial focus of this missionary journey. They don't seem to be as focused on the Gentile world initially as they are certainly focused on the Jewish world. We see number one, Barnabas is a native of Cyprus. He's a Jew, he's a native of Cyprus. He has all sorts of contacts on Cyprus. Number two, Cyprus is a home to a significant Jewish population. They're they're at a synagogue. There's numerous synagogues during this time on Cyprus. It was well known for a very large Jewish population, which meant that they could come in and preach the fulfillment of the Messianic promises to people who knew what those promises were. And number three... Just in case you had forgotten, back in chapter 11, we were told that after Stephen was stoned to death, a number of Christians went to where? Cyprus. So the gospel is, is in Cyprus. Countless Jews in Cyprus. Seems like a good place to go. And that seems to be the primary focus as their missionary journeys begin. That is until they receive an unexpected and very providential summons from the Roman governor of the island, Sergius Paulus. 
We're talking about the highest ranking official on the entire island sends for them that he might hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pick this up in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. That, that he was with means like he worked for. Sergius Paulus, who is he? He's a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul. And what did he want? He sought to hear the word of God. He wants to hear the gospel. He wants to hear what are they preaching. But Elmas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and all villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The conclusion, then the proconsul believed. He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this this, this scene opens up. This is actually a surprising beginning. Saul and Barnabas are inconsequential nobodies in the Roman world. We're talking about the highest official on the island, calling for these people who are basic nobodies. They have no connection to the upper crust of society. They're not really well, they're not well-known philosophers. They don't have this authority of their own. Yes, Paul's a Roman citizen, but they're personally invited to share the gospel with a Roman governor. Personally invited. In, in some ways, ways it, it's like Cornelius all over again. A Gentile wants to hear the word of God. And he sends for a messenger of God. And through a divinely orchestrated series event, God provides these messengers. Now, whether, whether Sergius Paulus is responding to what he's recently heard on the island with them coming to visit, or he's heard about the gospel before, we don't know. But we know that God has sent them all the way from Antioch to Cyprus that Sergius Paulus might hear the gospel. Yet as they start to share, we get to meet Sergius Paulus's, we might call him his spiritual advisor. Right? Spiritual advisor. An apostate Jewish sorcerer whose name literally means son of Jesus. And what, what, does, what does Son of Jesus do? He launches a preemptive attack against Saul and Barnabas in a desperate attempt to turn his master away from the faith. He wants to turn away. So you see, the so-called Son of Jesus wants nothing to do with the real Jesus Christ. And while Luke doesn't tell us how or what he was doing to turn the governor away, he tells us how the Holy Spirit himself responded to the attack against the gospel. That's what I want, I want to highlight here for a minute. 
in the text, what is the response? How is it driven? Where does it come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit filling the Apostle Paul in the moment. He's, he's called them and he's sent them and now what is he doing? He is empowering them for ministry. He's empowering specifically Paul. See, see, Paul does not confront Bar-Jesus and curse him with temporary blindness instead of Barnabas because, because Barnabas was simply passive or afraid. He, he, Paul doesn't do it because he was more assertive or wanted to prove he had more power than the false prophet. No, what we see in the text here is that in the moment the Holy Spirit chose to actively work through Paul instead of Barnabas. It's Holy Spirit's work. Holy Spirit's the one who steps in. And and there's many things in this account here that we can rightfully spend time on that we're not going to spend time on today. Yes, this is a place in the the entire storyline of Acts where Saul's name is changed to his Greek Roman name, to Paul. Now it's, it's Paul. It's a name he's had forever. He hasn't gone by it, but now he goes by that. And it shows what? His focus is really now going to be, as we're going to see through the entire storyline, his increasing move to serve the Gentiles. Also, what happens here, and it starts to unfold even more as the story moves, moves along, is that instead of, this, instead of our missionary team being known as Barnabas and Saul, it is now Paul and Barnabas. Paul takes the leadership in the team. But all of this coming about, not just because Paul is this superstar that trained under Gamaliel, but because the Holy Spirit has stepped in. These developments are merely the result of the Spirit's filling. And and we've seen the Holy Spirit fill his people before in the book of Acts, right? The church gathers and they pray. They're being persecuted. They're like, God, would you do something? Would you grant us boldness? What? Spirit falls on his people and what? They, they, They now speak the word boldly. The Spirit's filling in throughout the entire book of Acts is really tightly connected to boldness for the gospel, which is what we see in Paul. So who is this Bar-Jesus? In the end, he's not a powerful foe. He's not a powerful foe. He's not a representative of Jesus. He's not even walking in the ways of his, of his, of his blood father Abraham, is he? No, as Paul rightfully points out through the Holy Spirit, he, he's, he's living as a son of the devil. He's not living as a son of Abraham. And the key about him being the devil's son here is that he's, he's following in the deceitful ways of his father. Satan is a liar. Satan is a deceiver. That is what he does. And, and, and what's the magician trying to do here? He's trying to twist and pervert the straight paths of the Lord that lead to forgiveness and life through faith in Jesus Christ. Anything he can do to get Sergius Paulus turned away. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to blind Sergius Paulus to the light of the gospel. John chapter 3, as Jesus points out, this is judgment. 
Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And we, and we see, we see Bar-Jesus in this light. His works are evil, his deeds are evil, he wants nothing to do with God, he wants the darkness and he wants to keep his master in the darkness as well. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But, whatever, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. That's what he's trying to do. Elmas hates the light because he loves the darkness. Which in many ways is why I think that he's cursed with blindness. Temporarily. But to show the true darkness that he's truly living in. He hates the light. Fine, you're not going to have the light. And what's the ultimate result? What's the end of the account? Where does it bring us to? It's that the Holy Spirit reverses the false prophet's attempt to hinder the faith of his master. Sergius Paulus comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The word is affirmed. The Holy Spirit confirms this is a message from God. Undeniably so. And he believes The Holy Spirit straightens the twisted path. The straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit sends, he confirms, and he clarifies. And when it comes down to it at the end, why does this man come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Because of the Holy Spirit's active work in the ministry of the apostles. Throughout this entire section, it does not highlight the rhetorical skill of Paul. But just like Jesus pointed to back in Acts chapter 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's, that's why the church is constantly dependent on what the Holy Spirit does. Not just our own wisdom, not just our own abilities, but in his work and his blessing through his people. Apart from that, we can't accomplish anything that's going to last. So this morning I'd like to just ask, what does this, this mean for us today? We think of what's going on and you're like, well, Mark, I... I don't remember the last time I met an evil sorcerer. Granted, we live in Washington State. Maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. <laughs> We're not going to focus on that. No. I, I, I'd, I'd like us actually to consider with the needs of our own church. We're going to talk about the necessity of the Spirit fulfilling the mission, for, for fulfilling the mission of God that he's given to the church. Let's talk about our church. See, see on the one hand, I, I want to begin by saying we have any number of reasons to be thankful for God's work in our midst. Okay? Like, like, so, so as we're talking about this morning, I want to be clear, like God is working. I don't think he's not working. 
I know God is working. I mean, my word, there's only one way that we survived through COVID, right? There's only one way we went through all of the ups and downs and everything that that thing was. God preserved us through the ups and downs of all of that. At the same time, God is actively working in our discipleship ministries. Where we're seeing, we're seeing excitement and growth in our ministries on Wednesday night. Whether that be our primary ages, whether it be our teens who are meeting with Pastor Ryan, studying through the Gospel of John, whether that be our adults that are gathered together as we're going through this one-to-one Bible reading, focusing on, on getting better Bible study skills that we can actually share with other people, not only serving ourselves. We're seeing people get more and more serious about their faith. Kids who are excited to be here on a Wednesday night. Now, that takes a lot just all in of itself. And they're not playing games upstairs. Just recently, I've heard from a couple people how God is working in their lives and that they're actively sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that God puts in their life, whether that be the people kind of in their, their relational group that they're often in and sometimes even with people who they're meeting in passing at the store or at the barber or somewhere else looking for opportunities to share. And it's like, if that's not God working, I don't know what is. It's good. And on top of that, God is binding us together more and more as a church family. And, and I know that not everybody feels the same degree in our church. That's, it's unfortunately how things often end up being, but Ryan and I, or, or our elders, have to stay later and later every week to lock the building up. Amen. Wednesday night, we have to stay later and later to lock the building up, and I'm not complaining. Praise the Lord that you guys are hanging out, talking, getting to know each other more, expanding your relational groups, finding out what's going on in each other's lives. It's like, that's awesome. I love it. Good things. Okay? Good things are happening. But just like every other church, we have struggles and we have deficiencies. Every church has them. And, and one of our greatest needs that we have right now at the moment, we've been bringing forward to you in, in, our, in our newsletter and, and reminding of you, reminding you guys um, in announcements is really, we are really at a place where we need church leadership people to take active, long-term roles in church leadership. What, what, what does that mean? That means elders, because I have every expectation that the church in Kirkland is going to grab Nick and chain him down and keep him there. I have every expectation that's going to happen. So that's one elder. Gone. For a wonderful reason. But it's one. We have other elders that, that they're getting a little older and they'll probably need to retire sometime soon. We need elders. We need deacons. And yes, I know right now we're, our, our nomenclature, we're kind of changing how that, that looks. But basically, yeah, we need some deacons. We need somebody to oversee fellowship, oversee our building. And, and, and honestly, when we sat down and talked as, as church leaders, the elders, and our committee of ministers together, we identified a handful of ministries, double handful, dump truck load of ministries, whatever you want to call it, 
a number of things that we wished we were able to do but we're not able to do because we don't have the people to oversee those things. It's needs. We, we, need, we need coordinators. You don't have to be an elder-level qualified person or a deacon-level qualified person to oversee the greeting ministry on Sunday morning or, or to oversee the nursery. Two positions which we still haven't filled. Their needs. They're, they're, they're actual needs. And, and, and it, it's, it's just where we're at. And, and, and I, have to, I, have to, I have to believe that the church in Antioch felt some similar pressure when Saul and Barnabas got called out. Like, who's going to take over those things? Who's going to do that? I mean, he just called the two most qualified leaders. I mean, I mean two people were losing. We're losing Nick. We're losing, we're, we're losing Dennis. Yet for everything we see in the book of Acts, in all the problems that countless churches had, we don't seem to have a list of problems that the church in Antioch had because there was no leadership after Saul and Barnabas left. It seems to be continuing as a really solid church. And, 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 and church, we should find comfort in this. We should find comfort in it. See, see the question that we're facing as a church today is who is God calling to fulfill our leadership needs. I think that's the question in front of us. Who, who's, God, who's God calling from our church right now to fill the needs that we have right now? And in light of that, I'd like to conclude with just two questions. This, this is where we start getting the pointy end of the spear. Number, first question is, um, are, are you a person that quickly excludes yourself from the call to greater leadership in the church. When you hear the need, you just quickly exclude yourself. Like, like that's somebody else. That's obviously not me. And, and if so, why? What, what, what's the reason for doing that? I, I mean, on the one hand, there are right and proper reasons to not pursue that. I'll be clear. There's right and proper reasons. One of the biggest, especially as we talk about elders and deacons, is that God has laid down the qualifications for elders and deacons. And if there's, there's something wrong in your life that's not aligned with that, that needs to be worked on, then it's a right time to say, yeah, not right now. But please don't stay there. Let's work on that. But on the other hand, God's qualifications are, are normally not the biggest reasons that people sidestep the call for service. It's not, it's not the biblical qualifications. In many cases, we exclude ourselves because we just say we're too busy. We're too busy, but we do a good job filling our schedules up, but we're, we're too busy. We, we also look around at the people who did the job before and we say, I'm obviously not as skilled as that person. There's no way I could possibly do that. But the reality is, is that every single one of us is busy and even for those of us serving, none of us feel as skilled as we wish we were including myself. I mean, just take a minute. And you can actually pivot. It's okay. I mean, I'd encourage you to look around the room right now. Look, look around the room right now. Like, like, like this is our God-given leadership pool at the moment. Okay, there's a couple people who aren't here today. I mean, that's every Sunday. But, but like, like, you know who's missing. 
It's like by, by the providence of God, this is our leadership pool. This is who we have. So when we think about who should be doing it, we need to be thinking like, who would we actually have? And it's us. And that means that God has to be. And I know you you might feel like I'm stretching, but if we have leadership needs and we're looking around and we don't have people serving, it means God has to be calling some people to service who kind of are maybe kind of like, kind of like stiff arming it. No, not me, no, right? Because this is who we have. And if they're true needs, which they are, we need to consider We need to consider why. But the comfort in God's calling, the comfort in God's calling is this. God never asks us to pursue or fulfill his mission in our own strength and in our own wisdom. He doesn't, doesn't, no. He freely provides the power and the discernment we need through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit himself. He did it in Antioch. He did it in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And he will certainly do it in our church. Which brings me to the closing second question. The closing question is this. Would you commit yourself to actively praying for the leadership needs of our church? Actively pray. This week, be actively praying, not once, multiple times, over dinner with your family, actively praying for the leadership needs of our church. Yet yet in this, not merely asking God to identify the leaders we need, but also honestly asking the question, is he calling you? Is he calling you? Is he calling you to ministry? Is he calling you to serve at this point in time where we are at in our church? And if you feel like that is the case, we have some men who are happy to help you walk through that discernment process. We'd love to talk to you about it. God is doing wonderful things in our church. And we have some needs. Yet as a church, we're looking for God to supply those needs in his power, for his glory. Let's close in a word of prayer.